It's been kind of a rough ride at the beginning of 2023. <laughs> I wonder what year we're going to be at where we're going to be like, this has been the lightest beginning of the year ever. What was 2020 like? Was that, <laughs> was January, you know, we were so blissfully ignorant of what was to come. Were we like, just happy New Year's babies? Or? <laughs> I mean, when I think about our foray into the beginning of the podcast and recording those early conversations, yeah, we were like innocent little babies back in 2020. <laughs> Fair. You know, what's funny, though, is I feel like every year they have that meme that's like, 2020 is this evil beast and then 2021 it's like some other evil beast like hold my beer yeah right for some reason they did the same thing last year i don't remember how 2022 started but it was also rough 2023 has been not the same kind of turmoil but just yeah i feel like we're in one of those movie sequels where there was the original movie and that movie was like legit scary and they keep trying to replicate it and it's definitely a different flavor of scary Um, (laughs) maybe getting less it's like what else can we throw at the main characters (laughs) like the saw series (laughs) we're living the saw series it's like come on man this is a little ridiculous it's very ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the Viola-Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists finding inspiration through authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. It feels good to be back. It does feel good to be back. I'm having a particularly open-hearted day. Oh, what does that mean for you? I think it has to do with redirecting myself back into mindfulness practices on a more regular Mm. basis. And it's just such a wild thing because I take for granted the simplest of routines (laughs) to start my day, the difference they make. Mm. But it's been really great. At the same time, I feel like I'm a lot more grounded, but I also have all these things I want to do and I want to like explore and I want to learn. And I just, I'm feeling inspired, I guess, is the right way to put it. I'm very grateful for our Mozart in the Jungle watching <laughs> recap series that we're doing right now. <laughs> oh, please check it out, you guys. If you haven't, we're having fun. Yes. <laughs> it's just like light, fun, entertaining. It's just a good time. So. Yeah. Anybody who needs like a little fun. If your favorite part of our podcast is this right here, <laughs> you should listen to Then you should episode. listen to Dart <laughs> in the Jungle because it's basically this for like 35 minutes. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way of putting it. We're just rehashing a pretty ridiculous plot line. <laughs> yeah. If you're a skipper and you skip all this, then maybe it's not for you. <laughs> Right. (laughs) Right. Skippers, it's okay. We still love you. Yeah, you totally you're here for the interviews. And that's makes Mm -hmm. total sense. Yeah, there's something for everybody. Yes. But we did find out from a friend of ours that this is a particularly entertaining segment for people in the process of making reads. Yes. So (laughs) spread the word. Spread the word. All of you double readers. We'll keep you company. We'll keep you While you whittle away. And we have lots of questions for you. So if you are a double read player and you haven't checked out Mozart in the Jungle, please do, because we pose a lot of questions about the lives of oboe and bassoonists. The lives. Yes, the musical lives. We want to know all the dirty details. And if you want to join us in this epic saga of watching Mozart in the Jungle, we are now on a schedule of every other week, just like we are with our regular episodes. It's just going to be on the off weeks of our interview episodes. So you can catch up. We're going to watch the third episode and post that after this episode comes out. So yes, and just a little plug for other things that we have going on. Mm -hmm. We have a Patreon, which is a way that you can support us in keeping to make these episodes. And also we have a Joy Loves Company group that you can access through our Patreon. And it's just a way to show us that you like what we do and you're supporting us. So we have a couple of new patrons to shout out. Yes, thank you so much to our friends, Stephen and Kate for joining the Patreon. I believe that makes it three Kates to date, which is pretty impressive. Three Kates to date? I'm rhyming this morning. You that's are. what That's what open hearted means. Okay. <laughs> Full of You're rhymes. O- open to all the rhymes. 
and the puns. <laughs> yes. So thank you so much, you guys. Yeah, thank you. Who are already patrons and who are considering it. We're posting kind of like deleted scenes. So if you're really curious to see what we look like when we're talking... <laughs> Sometimes we're wearing makeup, sometimes we are not. <laughs> sometimes and the hair's in a bun. I mean, <laughs> we're here for you guys. <laughs> you can also follow Stephanie's redecoration of her pod closet. Yes. She's in process right now. I'm in the process cool. of an artistic reimagining. I may be going through some various iterations of a pod location in the coming weeks. Liz on location. So those will be up on our Patreon as well. You can watch us in the flesh. Yeah. I wanted to share with you a particularly moving musical experience I had this past weekend. I had the opportunity to play an all strings concert, which was utterly incredible. And by the way, strings players, is there anything more nostalgic than playing in string orchestra? Because that's what high school was. Yes. That's what elementary school. I mean, middle school was. All of our formative years growing up, that was the form that we used to learn how to play our instruments. And I don't think it gets utilized enough in the professional setting because, oh my gosh, the like lushness, the warmth, just incredible to like delve into just blending with a stage full of string players. So, so inspiring, so much fun. But this program that I played, it was a beautifully curated program. Just the way it started, the way it finished, the way it bridged. And the center of the program was actually a piece written by a living composer named Steve Snowden. And it was written for solo cello and electronics. And the solo cellist, his name is, I'm going to shout him out because he's just such an incredible human being, Skylar Slack, who's actually from this area. The piece is called This Mortal Frame. And it is written basically to tell the story of one of the most famous escaped slaves. His name was Samuel A. Smith. And he traveled 26 hours inside a crate over a steamship, a barge, all of these harrowing parts of the journey. And then he went on to have this long life and actually traveled the world and spoke about the evils of slavery and his journey and really educating people on what was happening at the time. So Steve basically took these field recordings and he chopped them all up and he created a musical setting and it's almost like a duet between the electronics and the cello so sometimes the electronics are more present sometimes you hear the cello and then they blend together often the journey is in four movements and there's one that's the first one very sorrowful i don't even know how to explain how Mm. intense it is there's one that's like heavy metal just relentless uncomfortable it's meant to depict this steamship and he's on this crate in this steamship hearing all these conversations happening around him and things like that and then at the end he arrives in philadelphia the crate is open and this is a true story this man gets out of this crate after 26 hours and sings a hymn the cello part plays the hymn that he sang to the best of historians' knowledge, the way that it was sang when he was alive. Oh my God. Wow. And so I knew it was going to be good. I'm obsessed with Steve Snowden's work. I'm absolutely in love with his work. There's quartets he's written that I perform, and I just can't get enough of it. So I listened to the dress rehearsal, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so good. So the first concert, I couldn't get to the front, so I sat backstage. There was no chairs back there. I just sat on the floor, listened to it. And I was so moved, and the crowd was hearty applause next two shows i actually went out and sat in the audience and on the second night which i think was the best performance for everybody whole program by far the audience it's hard music to listen to there are moments of beauty there are real moments of conflict it's hard listening in some ways mm-hmm. but that audience was captivated you could have heard a pin drop in between movements and nobody moved standing ovations at the end Wow. So moved by Skylar's playing, which was phenomenal. And by the piece itself, the story behind the piece, there's something about this music that just speaks to people today. And it's really relevant. And it just made me feel hopeful that we're in a bit of a renaissance right now, I think, with the embracing of music that's being written today. I feel very hopeful about that. Mm. Yeah, that you can be moved to tears by a piece of music that's crunchy at times, but also just heartbreakingly beautiful. So for those of you who are like fighting the good fight and trying to innovate and open up the canon, I think we're on the right track. I actually think we're doing good things as a community. I really do. At least it felt that way this weekend. Oh, that's great that you had that experience. We need little 
drops like that to kind of keep us going. <laughs> yes, absolutely. How about you? Everything good? Everything's good. Yeah. You've been in show world. I've been doing a show, which is definitely different than my usual gig. And it's definitely shown me different aspects of skill. So when you do a show, the first couple are like white knuckles. You're kind of hanging on like, oh my gosh, I hope that I don't plan any rests. I want to make sure that I get all the cues right, all the key signatures that are changing all the time. But then after that, after you get settled, there's almost like an evolution of the skills that you need. So then you need skills of focus and <laughs> being sure that you aren't overconfident in your knowledge of the show because <laughs> things do change. So <laughs> <laughs> every once in a while every once in a while they <laughs> change surprise <laughs> and then just kind of finding new ways to enjoy it new challenges to set you for yourself and yeah it's definitely a concentration and focus kind of endeavor mm -hmm. which has been good yeah but i've had a couple of frustrating situations over the past couple weeks and i've realized that i need something non-music to take me out of that mm -hmm. so what i've been doing is baking <laughs> Oh, I love Anybody that. who knows me knows that's what I love to do. She's a baker. And for a long time, I've really felt the pressure to do something monetarily with that talent, that interest. And I was talking with one of our friends, Chandra. So Chandra, if you're listening, thank you for listening. I love you. We both love you. Hugs and kisses. You're the best. So many. We have <laughs> not so secret crushes on you. Such a cool broad. Oh my gosh, she's the best. But anyway, I was talking with her and she was talking about how there's a lot of pressure to turn things that we love and do for peace and do for enjoyment into side hustles. Full body nod. I've decided that baking is not that thing for me. It is my thing personally that I do and I don't need to make money at it in order for it to be a worthwhile part of my life. Hmm. And so... If anybody out there has a hobby that they are feeling conflicted about, it's okay to keep it just for yourself. Yeah. Your own inner peace and enjoyment. And you don't have to open a bakery or a pottery studio or sell your things on Etsy or put any kind of pressure on yourself to make it any more than something that's just for you. But I, I really appreciated that conversation I had with Chandra about that because it really, it kind of gave me the permission to let go of that. Mm. That's what I've kind of discovered over this past couple weeks. I love that so much. So we have another great episode lined up with a really good friend and an amazing human being, <laughs> truly really special human being, Donnie Johns, who is the founder of the DMV Percussion Academy, now DMV Music Academy. I don't know. What did you think about this conversation, Steph? I loved it. I love talking with him. He is a very grateful person. Mm-hmm. And that was really refreshing. And it's a great reminder. I think sometimes being grateful is definitely something that you have to exercise at in order for it to become part of your life. Mm -hmm. But it's extra hard when there aren't people in your life who are also doing that practice. Ah, yeah. And so it reminded me to surround myself with people who are doing that work and check in with them about that work. Because it will help keep me motivated to keep that as a practice in my life. Yes, which actually is such a great segue into one of the themes of our conversation that I thought kept coming up, which was really impactful to me about community mm. and about how he seems to have spent a very significant amount of time reflecting on needs of community, on his experience growing up in certain communities, and really has been, I think, shaping his career always with that sort of foundation in mind. And those two things combined with each other, community and gratitude, what wonderful ways to ground yourself. I was just thinking about this idea that I always feel like I have my most significant points of growth as a person when I'm able to share in the experience of learning or practicing something with other people in community. Mm -hmm. And and you're absolutely right about that stuff with gratitude. It's much easier to do that practice if you know other people who are also dedicated to that kind of practice, because mm -hmm. then you recognize so much more. 
was a wonderful conversation. It was just really nice to just like chat with a friend and share it with everybody. Ruminations mm-hmm. about this life we all live. <laughs> and Donnie is a freelancer, mm-hmm. but he also considers himself a small business owner, an entrepreneur, which as we've espoused many, many, this is one of Liz's main talking points is that we are all small business owners of our own personal small business, which is ourselves. And he really takes that to heart. And he loves to start new projects. So it's really interesting to hear what he's dreaming up, what he's cooking up and what he's done already. So it's very inspiring for all of us to know that, or for me at least, to know that he's out there starting things all the time. So it's like, oh, I could do that too. I could be starting things. I could be taking all these steps to like better my life, better my career, but also have an impact on the community. Totally. It's such an empowering thing to embrace. And the more we can tie it to those lives as freelancers, I think the more empowered we feel. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation with Donnie Johns. Being freelance musicians means gigging in lots of different places with very unpredictable lighting situations. Oh my gosh, yes. How many times have you shown up to a church gig and wondered if you'll actually be able to see the music by showtime? Many times. Or it's a cocktail hour in a restaurant with ambient mood lighting at best. (laughs) We've all been there and have used those alien looking bendy lights that only light up the top of the page so that by the bottom of the music, you're sometimes just guessing or maybe we'll call it being creative. We didn't know it at the time, but the Aria lights could have saved us lots of eye strain and unplanned improvisation. Yes, and with a rechargeable battery that lasts eight hours, you'll never have to carry backup double A's in your case. You'll just charge it up at home and take the Ari Light to your gig. The battery will even hold a charge for years between uses, not that you would go that long. Thank you so much to Aria Lights for their support this season. Please check them out at arialights.com. Located in a historic mansion in Tacoma Park, Maryland, you might get the impression that the team at Potter Violins are as formal as the breathtaking building that they work in. But when you go inside, instead you'll find the most relatable, skilled, and friendly staff. Yes, the people at Potter's are what really make it a special place. I love visiting because I know that whoever I work with is not going to make me feel like I'm crazy or just being picky. They're kind of like your favorite bartender. They're great listeners who give you what you need without judgment. (laughs) Yes, their technicians are not only super talented, creative, and resourceful, they take the time to collaborate with you so that the process of getting your instrument at its best really feels like a partnership. So if you're in the area, definitely stop by and introduce yourself to Chris, Rob, Kimberly, Derek, Jim, Melissa, and the whole team or visit potterviolins.com to find what you need online. It's so fitting then that their shop is in this beautiful old house because the staff at Potter's really makes it feel like home. Season three is sponsored by the Arcrest. You know, Liz and I are always being asked about our Arcrests, and we're happy to share how much we love them. The freedom of movement has been life-changing for me. Me too. And I love how using the Arcrest allows my instrument to vibrate fully. And depending on how my body's feeling, I can also change the placement of the bass. Although Aaron and Tigran started the company in their home workshop, they've come a long way, continuing to innovate by experimenting with harder and softer woods and even new materials like fiberglass. There are bases for violin, viola, and even for small fractional instruments. And there are foam pads of different thicknesses, so you can find one that fits your body or instrument perfectly. And the guys over at Arcrest are sharing a special discount code for our listeners. Use the code VIOLACENTRIC for 10% off anything on their site. Yes, check out their offerings at thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T.com. And don't forget to use the code VIOLACENTRIC. Donnie Johns is an in-demand percussion performer and educator in the Baltimore, Washington metropolitan area. He performs regularly with many professional orchestras, including the Apollo Orchestra, the Gateways Festival Orchestra, and the Color of Music Festival Orchestra. Mr. Johns is also the adjunct professor of percussion at Bowie State University in Bowie, Maryland, as well as the percussion methods course instructor at the University of Maryland in Baltimore County. His role as educator has led him to found the DMV Percussion Academy, an intensive program that exists to expose, engage, and edify people through all forms of percussive art. 
which I love. And I love that you included that on your website. So you are a freelancer and an educator, and you took a major step in founding a school exclusively for percussionists. And we all know what it takes to start something from scratch. It takes a lot of effort. You have to educate yourself about a lot of stuff. So you have to have a lot of passion about it. So why was it so important to you to found this academy just for percussionists? I've been a percussion educator for about 18 years, and I've been in all sorts of different environments, socioeconomics, demographics, what have you. And I just find there's all sorts of just limitations and confines that you have being in the school system. And I wanted to create an organization that kind of removes students from those confines. You know, today's educational culture is so driven by test scores and math and English and all those things for a variety of reasons. But music is often undermined and kind of put on the back burner and percussion especially. And so I said, let me go ahead and leverage my experiences, leverage the connections I've made in the percussion field and create an organization where we can expose students to all forms of percussion. Another thing is that I found in the percussion community is so vast, which is great in a lot of ways, but it creates different silos. In other words, you kind of have your drumline crew and you have your marimba crew and your orchestra crew and your drum set crew and what have you. I wanted to bring all those styles together. I have leveraged a lot of connections in all those realms. Let me expose students to all those forms in one organization. Yeah, that's really great. So do kids who consider themselves in those different crews mix and mingle? Exactly, exactly. And a lot of it is just there's that sort of awkwardness at first because, you know, you're comfortable with what you're familiar with, right? And so a lot of times you'll reject things just for the sake of just being unfamiliar with them. And that's why the exposure is so important. Once they're exposed to it, they're like, oh, this is actually kind of cool. There's overlap here. This is pretty neat. And then they begin to become enriched by those experiences just by being introduced to things that were once unfamiliar to them. Mm -hmm. So did you have that experience growing up? Were you kind of drawn to one aspect of percussion and took you a while to get into other aspects? You know, it kind of came to me in phases. I started off taking snare drum lessons when I was in elementary school for a couple of years. Then my parents couldn't afford me anymore, so they stopped. But drumline in high school was what really got me into being into percussion and really enjoying that. And then from there was percussion ensemble. And then I got fully into marimba and drum set and all those things kind of came up in tears. But yeah, drumline was the gateway as it is for many, many percussionists. But it's interesting because you definitely went on the orchestra track professionally, so. Right, and that started in college. My junior year of college at the University of Maryland, I got into the uh, symphony orchestra, and that was just a whole new world. I mean, just the sounds and just the creation. I remember we did a side-by-side concert with members of the National Symphony with the University of Maryland, and we did uh, Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe. Mm -hmm. And just oh, being a yeah. part of that experience, just those those sounds, I was like, wow. There was like a moment that's always stuck with me. Like, this is what I want to do. That, that's when like orchestra just took over for me. I love that. I always wonder, because I always feel bad for percussionists a lot of it. Because we, as string players, we're playing like 98% of the time. And you look right, back and right. these percussionists are off for a whole movement or something. And yep. I wonder how you get into playing in an orchestra when... There's so many things you could do. I feel like even band stuff, there's much more percussion involved. Yeah, there's pros and cons to having the time off, right? But it's true. A lot of it is contingent upon the repertoire. Some rep is not the most engaging, but then when, when we're in, we're in, you know? It's so interesting too, right? Because there's also a timpanist who's got huge parts in orchestra. And then there's like percussion mm -hmm. section where you might be playing triangle. <laughs> Right, hey, right, right, right. Hey, triangle is hard. And important. Yeah. Uh, very and loud. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's varied levels of engagement depending on what you're playing. You know, it all matters. The composer wrote it, and so if he or she put it on the page, then it, it matters. My mom always used to say that was like her favorite thing to watch when she come to orchestra concerts was a percussion, a big percussion session. Like the way they organize the parts and how you're all moving around. Like, okay, yeah. I gotta go cover this thing. I gotta go cover that. Like, it's it's amazing yeah. the coordination yeah. back there. Could be a frenzy. <laughs> Every little detail, but not to knock these other forms, drumline stuff. Oh, that stuff is impressive. Yeah, it's fun, and I say my line with percussion is that it has the lowest bar of accessibility, but the highest bar of mastery. And so I love it. That's why it's so engaging for so many different kinds of people because you can put 
you know, a shaker in somebody's hand and they're a part of the group. They're a percussionist. But I think it's impossible to master all forms of percussion. So you can spend your whole life studying and getting better in all different forms. Oh, so cool. So who are the kids that come to DMV Percussion Academy? What kind of kids are you working with? So DMV stands for, I have to always explain to people outside the region, D.C., Maryland, Virginia. There's nothing to do with the auto, you know, uh, <laughs> the car, car. Completely different vibe. And so we recruit students kind of from all around that region. We started off at Northwestern High School in Hyattsville. So it's mostly students from Prince George's County, a few from D.C., we actually have branched out. We had a week-long residency at the Kennedy Center this past summer in June. And then this summer, we're actually gearing up, still in the planning stage, but we're gearing up to be at probably three different locations throughout Maryland this upcoming summer. That is amazing. That's amazing. In yeah. like three years. Oh, thank you. And over a pandemic, you're growing. You know, it's funny. I think what kind of helped elevate us a little bit is that over the pandemic, we were able to put together a virtual program that was pretty successful. I was actually kind of thinking about canceling it, and then friends, colleagues said, no, nah, i try to make it work. And in retrospect, the fact that we were able to do something when many other organizations weren't kind of gave us a little more recognition. Someone was just saying to me the other day, we were talking about pandemic times and how there were sort of these roughly two tracks that people went down. There was either hibernation mode, you know, <laughs> sit down, mm-hmm. buckle down, mm-hmm. like lay low, decompress, which totally awesome and then there was the creation side there were all of these cool things creative projects that came out of it and to know that you could do something virtually like that is huge and i can't even imagine the complications of doing that with percussion we did it with strings but they all have their instruments sitting at home and they can play at home yeah it was very tricky you know i say Speaking very, very, very selfishly, the pandemic was in a lot of ways great for us. It gave us time just to kind of hunker down and just focus on this one thing because nothing else was going on. So it gave me a chance to really kind of plan, organize, develop the organization. We are now going into our sixth year. I have to say, too, we've expanded beyond percussion. Now we're offering brass and woodwinds. So actually it's DMV Music Academy now because we're doing things beyond percussion as well. And so I've added two other colleagues, Larry Williams, who does the brass, great French horn player in the area, and then bassoonist Cheryl Nakiba, who does the woodwinds. Awesome. That is so cool. Do the students maintain a relationship with you throughout the year? They do. During the school year, it's tricky because many of them are involved in their school organizations, but then others aren't. And so just trying to figure out what that would look like, maybe some weekend mini camps, just kind of figuring out what that would look like to have the engagement continue throughout the school year. Well, I know that you and Liz go way back. Yeah. <laughs> and we've worked together as freelancers too in yeah. the past. But yep. as a freelancer, how did you find yourself subsisting during the pandemic? How did you deal with that as a player? Thank God for teaching. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, I would have had <laughs> no, you know, zero income. You guys know there was nothing happening. That was tough in a lot of ways, obviously financially, but also the social aspect of hanging out with your friends. And there's benefits that we have in playing beyond just the music, the social aspect and just being able to connect with one another and check in on each other and all sorts of things. Mm. And you take a lot of that for granted. Once it stopped happening, you're like, wait a minute, this is like really a void that was created. It's like we spent a lot of time <laughs> commiserating, complaining about gigs. And then once they went away, we're like, wait a minute, maybe we do kind of like these things. You yeah. Know? <laughs> Oh, man. What's what's the line? You want to hear a musician complain, give, give him a, give a gig. gig, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I do think we've had a fair amount of those kind of conversations over the years, my friend. <laughs> yeah. Wait, I don't like Absolutely. to call it complaining. I like to call it making astute observations about the state of uh, our work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And listen, much of it is accurate <laughs> and needed, but then I think it's a balance, right? Like, it is important to talk about things that are problems and things that need to be fixed, but also at the same time being grateful for what does exist. It's that balance. Absolutely. That was something that we talked about a lot in the pandemic for us was, oh, wow. Like, there's so much to be grateful for getting to do what Mm -hmm. we do for a living. And I think actually referring to one particular job you and I were on, Donnie, I may have said something like, if it's making you miserable and you can't find the joy in it, why do it? Absolutely. It's a labor of love that ideally, as we are learning, can turn into a viable income, a viable career path. But Mm -hmm. it does take a certain amount of work. And actually, this kind of blends nicely into something else that I wanted to bring up having you here 
these kind of conversations we've, like I said, we've been having for a long time. And one of the things I think that's come up for both of us is this concept of being an entrepreneur in the freelance music space and what that means to essentially operate yourself as though you're a small business and how relationships out there in the business make a huge difference and just the way we present ourselves and those creative endeavors. And there's something to be said that's very empowering, I think, about having that perspective. I think for me, kind of the way I'm wired, I get bored easily doing one thing. (laughs) And so like the entrepreneur route is sort of a natural one for me because I like to have my hands in a lot of different projects. And I like to create things. I like to build things from the ground up. Mm -hmm. You know, some people shy away from that kind of work. We're all wired differently. I like to start something from nothing and create out of nothing. Sometimes when things get up and running and are sustaining, I'm like, oh, I'm ready for the next challenge. I'm, I'm kind of <laughs> bored now. This is now successful. I'm like, eh, let me do something else. But also the pandemic and just times in general are showing us the importance of having the creativity to not just focus on one particular career path. I know when I was an undergrad, a lot of times it was all about just excerpts and auditions, and that's what everything was about. And that's a great path. That's a wonderful path for orchestral players. You know, I love orchestral music and percussion, all those things. But there's more to music than excerpts, right? <laughs> and so I think it's important <laughs> to expose young people in particular that there's all kinds of different viable career paths that you can have in music. And all Also, I think for me, just the deeper meaning of music as a conduit for connecting people and building community and giving young people outlets and giving them activities that can develop life skills, discipline, work ethic, character, all those things. Those things matter to me. There's more to life than Porgy and Bess and Scheherazade, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I hear it coming back to being a good example for a community of younger people out there. And I think it's such a great thing to keep in mind as we're working through. I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of intention for me as well. And connection, I think, is a huge piece. I know for Stephanie and me, it's a value in what we do here on the podcast and in the endeavors I have in terms of working with youth. It's that way too. As freelancers our age, we were so driven down that excerpt track that it feels almost foreign to consider that you can have a viable career, even if you're not just 100% in the boat of, I'm gonna win an orchestra audition one day, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And empowering other people in our current life situation with our careers to do the same is something that resonates so deeply for us. And thinking about it from the perspective of a young person who's coming up in whatever circumstances they're growing up in, to know that they have that empowerment as well. I just feel like society in general is shifting. A lot of career paths are shifting towards this idea of diversification and not being in one career for your whole life and just jazzes me up in general. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, look, just from a practical standpoint, there's only a finite number of orchestras and a finite number of positions And people that are going to these schools to major in music are incredibly outnumbering the number of positions. It's a lot of ways a crapshoot, regardless of your talent. My line is it's in addition to, not in replacement. Like the orchestral route is, is wonderful. It's awesome. I'm not knocking any of that. In addition to that, there are other viable paths as well. Yeah. I think that social media has played a big part into opening people's eyes to the different possibilities. When we were growing up, how did you get information? You read a book that was written 10 years ago or whatever, or mm-hmm. you took mm-hmm. the word of your teacher, right. or you went to an orchestra concert, or you were at school. And so those were the places where you were exposed to music. You didn't see, I mean, you saw MTV or whatever, but for a violist, that wasn't particularly something I saw in my future. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't feel as far away now. Not as much. Well, see, that's what I mean. So you see these people, other creative people doing creative things via social media, and you're exposed to a lot more. So your eyes are open to a lot more possibilities. You see people who are doing other things other than the orchestral route or the teaching route. So there's like much more potential in the eyes of these kids who are coming up these days. I agree. I mean, music is one of those things that everyone can relate to and identify with. And so it gives opportunities for people like us to be creative and figuring out ways that we can connect. I think a lot of times the mindset has been, how can we get society to fit into our narrow way of of viewing music? Now it's like, how can we expand our ways to reach out to them? Putting the onus on us to connect with society as opposed to the other way around. And so it opens up pathways for people to be creative and pursue that. I think if you are creative, if you are entrepreneurial, if you value connection, then this is a great time to be alive. 
I love that so much. What you said about looking to offer things that are valuable to other people. Right. It's like flipping it. Exactly. I mean, I think a lot of times it's been centered around kind of elitism and elitism by its nature is going to be small. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so it's like you realize after a while, well, shoot, we need funding. We need viability. (laughs) We've spent all these generations, all these years trying to be elite. And now we don't have anybody that gives a rip about us. And so now we have to actually be community oriented. (laughs) So it's been a shift in the thinking. So many full body nod moments there. (laughs) You said that thing about having to shift that perspective to reach out instead. And I don't know if that's the foundation for everything we do as humans. How amazing could that be? Rather than like, what can you do for me? It's like, what can I do for you? Right? Absolutely. You know, I've heard other little clips of interviews that you've done on other podcasts, only percussion podcasts. So you're welcome to be interviewed by two violists. (laughs) Honestly, like this, this is cool. This is an honor. It's cool to talk to people that aren't percussionists. You know, we get, you know, (laughs) gotta get you guys out of your tired talk. Want to say out of your zone? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's what I'm talking about, connecting, you know, this is awesome. Yes, this is great. absolutely. I think you have a pretty good value system for yourself. And Thank I you. think you tend to operate out in the world with that foundation in place. And what I've picked up from you in the past is a lot of gratitude, a lot of kindness. You're just a great guy. And I don't know if you you have any sort of intentional practices or work that helps ground you when you're having to be in this freelancer frenzy that you would want to share. But Oh, well, thanks so much. I think gratitude just puts you in the proper mind space perspective. There's a viable time and space for presenting challenges, gripes, complaints. That is healthy to get those out (laughs) in certain times and spaces. But if you consume yourself with that, then it becomes unhealthy. (laughs) And so being grateful and just practicing gratitude is super important. And just understanding that even when you're dealing with challenges, I just believe that they're temporary. You know, a lot of times we can attach permanence to like temporary setbacks, challenges, what have you. It's like, you know, these things will pass. And so that helps to have perspective, too. I believe everything happens for a reason, you know, faith as well. And so those things kind of help to keep me grounded. And I try to laugh a lot. I try to be a, a little bit of a jokester. Liz knows, cut up a lot. Of you, so. <laughs> yeah. Put two people together who like to laugh, and there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Magic yeah. is made, right? <laughs> <laughs> so important. Absolutely. And it is like a muscle, and it's hard to do sometimes to put yourself yeah. in that place of gratitude. But it does get easier the more that you work at it. Mm-hmm. And then just surround yourself with the right kinds of people. Oh, I mean, that's like, so key. That, it's everything because you're going to reflect the environment that you're in. Mm-hmm. You know, I get energized by things like this and being around people who want to connect and build. And that's what I really enjoy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to say. We've all been on those gigs that there was something about the energy. You ever heard of like energy vampires? Yeah. Yeah. It felt like yep. I was in a room of energy vampires. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was like I was being mm-hmm. sucked dry. And there was no mm-hmm. joy in mm-hmm. that space. But then I've been in other ones that you can just feel the positivity and people wanting to work yeah. together and wanting to achieve something together as a collaborative effort. And it makes the complete difference because you're not going to be able to change everybody that you interact right. with. You can definitely have an right. impact on them, but you can't change somebody who's just really, really negative. And that makes an experience right. really draining. Right. And call me old fashioned, but I really love just making music. I love the experience of making great music with great musicians. And so I find when you're in those negative environments, it takes away from the music making, which mm. to me is not worth the effort. Now, I mean, look, the practical side of it, you have to just pay your bills and, and do what you got to do. But ideally, you're with people that value the music making process as well. Yeah, right. I think that's really interesting, too. I've thought a lot about this in recent years, just in terms of the creation of a culture of a group that you play with and how that culture can be impacted from a leadership standpoint, for sure. But I think also that culture can be impacted by the team as a whole. And it is amazing what a difference it makes when you create opportunities for people to shift their perspectives. Or I would say supplementing or building that team with people who are able to infuse that kind of positive energy as much as negative energy can generate on itself. And it's a little bit harder work to do. I feel like positive energy can generate it on itself as well. Absolutely. And I love the idea that as music organizations, first of all, rooting it in, wow, like we're creating an art form and how incredible is it that we all get to 
be on this stage together and make music because who else gets to do something that incredible for a living? Right. And get paid to do it. And right. get paid to do it, right. right? Yeah, like that That's is right. that is an amazing thing. And we're Absolutely. so fortunate to get to do it. And also, we are our own communities. We're our own ecosystems mm-hmm. of human beings from the sub who's playing for the first time to the director who's been there for 20 years. Everybody's part of the same community and creating environments that are more conducive to positive thinking in those situations, I feel like can only help us continue to feel that urge to reach out. Yep. It's that distinction between abundance and scarcity. It's that feeling of, oh gosh, I Mm -hmm. need, I need, I need, Mm -hmm. versus Mm -hmm. I want to give, I want to give, I want to give. What can I give give to my community and to other people and, and to my fellow musicians? That's right. I think the mindset of us all feeding each other, as opposed to like trying to focus on just feeding yourself all the time. I find that people who try to serve themselves all the time are usually the emptiest. And the people who actually try to pour themselves out into others are usually more fulfilled. And so I think it's just thinking about each other and having that kind of mentality. And then I think things like this, what we're doing and you all are doing is helping to shift that culture. I was looking at some of the previous guests you all have had on your show. I really like the variety. It's been really, really cool. I've been following you all for a while, okay? But admittedly, the past couple of days, I've taken a deep dive. And so now I'm I'm going to continue. Right, right, right. I'm going to continue to to be fully immersed. You know, hence, you know, hence, 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 henceforth, I will be more deeply immersed in what you are doing. Henceforth, no less. (laughs) This is his decree. That's right. There was one more thing I wanted to circle back to that you said you brought up impermanence. This is something that I was just talking with somebody else about just maybe a week ago about the concept of impermanence and that I have, we all do, have this tendency to want to hold on to all the good stuff tight, real tight, because you're like, I'm going to lose this. And that causes suffering as much as the desire to push away the bad stuff right i mean Mm -hmm. all of those things contribute to us feeling badly in some way where Mm -hmm. if we just embrace that concept of right now is not good tomorrow might be great i'm grateful either way it's a huge concept and it's a tricky one but absolutely i think i'm starting to get a little bit more into the wellness space with the organization we want a grant from the maryland state arts council to start drumming wellness initiative for veterans in prince george's county kind of dealing with ptsd anxiety that sort of thing we may potentially get into some hospitals and doing similar things for trauma patients and so that's not my lane so i'm learning a lot of researching i'm trying to find people that know more about it than i do but all that to say this i read something recently that's talking about anxiety and depression and it was saying that it's oversimplification but i still think there's value anxiety has much to do with worry about the future and depression has much to do about regret over the past so just Mm -hmm. being in the moment can help to alleviate much of those challenges again Oversimplification, I'm not saying that's the cure-all, but being in the moment can help with some of those those challenges. Mm-hmm. And that's why playing music makes you just be in the moment and just engage in something right in the here and now. Absolutely. Just that alone can help with those anxiety, depression, and what, whatnot. Yeah. So the doctors say that I've researched it. Uh-huh. It makes complete <laughs> sense. There's not much else you yeah, can think yeah, about. I, think so. I mean, I can... My mind can go in a lot of different directions when I'm playing. Sure. But that exercise (laughs) of presence, of being in the moment and noticing things around you through your other senses is a really valuable way to stay present, to like absolutely enjoy the moment and then let it go and then look at what you've created. Mm-hmm. It's pretty That's amazing. Right. Music. That's right. We have this gift of something that can create that kind of presence for us that other humans don't get to experience necessarily. And I think as for someone whose mind operates kind of 10 miles a minute or whatever. I can relate. I found that in music, even when I was little, the moments of being completely present in the music making were small, and then my mind would wander. But it's been the easiest gateway for me to maintain more presence as I go, because especially in performance, rehearsal's a little bit different because we're all trying to just get as many things correctly as we can. We're trying to listen to what's going on around us so we can understand it. But I had this experience this weekend too, one rehearsal and then a bunch of shows. And the rehearsal was quite honestly, it was like a hot mess. You know, everybody was like all over the place. Intonation was hard to hear. We played the concert the next day and it was like everything turned on because people were in this mode of like, okay, now we're making music together. Right. What a rewarding experience to get to do. And like you said, Stephanie, you experience it You've created it and then you let it go because it's done and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. We've had, we had it. <laughs> mm-hmm. We let it go. It's amazing. Yeah. 
Also, the quote about anxiety and depression is, you're right, technically oversimplification, but I can tell you that my therapist has said it to me many times. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. if tracks, therapists yeah. say yeah. it. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's, it's got to be right. It's at okay. the very least something to kind of think about. So I mentioned in your bio about two of the orchestras that you play with, the Gateways Festival and the Color of Music Festival orchestras, and how there are two groups that spotlight professional Black classical musicians. And I wanted to know how you got involved in those and how you think that these groups are impacting the world of classical music and how being a freelancer in these groups may help further the cause and the involvement of people of color in classical music. Yeah, absolutely. So I started playing with Color of Music in 2014. They developed in 2013. I joined the second year, 2014. Then Gateways has been around since mid-late 90s or so, and I joined them in 2015. They really sort of elevated their platform right around that time, 2015. I love playing in those groups. It's like a family of musicians who, you know, are very talented, but that communal aspect is very present. We call it a family reunion with instruments, is what we call gateways. (laughs) So it's it's always a good time to get together and and be in that environment where great artists, the artistry is there, the excellence, the standard is there, but also just the communal support and just love, that family atmosphere there. One of my teachers, a great friend, colleague, um, mentor as well, Javon Gilliam, Timmy player for the National Symphony, was invited to do both (laughs) and at the time couldn't. And so he actually now does play in Gateways. But at the time, yeah, he was invited. He, He couldn't do it. So he recommended me. And so I say a lot of times, things he passes on to me has been very helpful in my career too. Grateful for the things he's offered me. And then, yeah, I think, again, we're talking about diversifying classical music, just music in general, representation is very important. You know, when young people can see that classical music is a viable pathway for young black students, brown students, people of color, you know, being able to see that this is a viable option. And again, just the exposure element too. A lot of times people will reject something and say, that's not for me because they're not familiar with it or they don't see people like them who excel in those areas. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we'll do with gateways and color music is we'll go out and we'll do performances in the neighborhoods, at schools, and people are blown away seeing us playing music, not only music in the classical standard kind of Western European canon, but also music by black composers and seeing that every aspect of it, the performing, the composing, all aspects we can be viable and successful in. I think it opens up the pathways of what's possible and what's imaginable for young people of color. So yeah, like you said before, our field has suffered from considering itself an elite group of people or an enterprise. Right. And Right. The way to expand that, absolutely, is for people to see that people like them are included. Right, exactly. Like we were saying, it's a value shift. I think in society in general, I think we are placing less value on elitism and placing more value on communal things. And so I think, you know, that's being reflected in our industry as well as many others. Yeah, there's no way to rewind the clock and recognize that there are these groups that have been doing this work for quite some time. But again, to Stephanie's point from earlier, to have social media out there now and to have some of you guys putting your work out there. I learned of those jobs and it just makes my heart happy to see photos when you post them of playing those jobs as I I see everybody just, like you said, it's like a family reunion. Everyone's having such a great time. What a beautiful thing. It's just really cool to have that added layer of exposure so that all of us can know Mm -hmm. that that's going on. I assume Mm -hmm. that the platform wasn't as available for these groups prior to this time. Right, absolutely. But this idea that our organizations, these standard regional or full-time professional orchestras, we see some of them starting to try to move the needle to some extent. There are efforts being made in some communities, I would say not all communities, to try to make things more accessible to everybody in a community. And I've been thinking a lot about like the shrinking elitism group that is catered to in these audiences even my parents are in their late 60s and my mom has an appreciation for classical music but to them it is a thing that i do it's like a museum-esque type of thing that i do Mm -hmm. it doesn't always speak directly to them so if that's the case for any community beyond i don't know the major donors then yeah who are we playing for still and that continues to be I think a big question, actually one we haven't explored all that much this season. We talked about mm-hmm. it a lot last year. But I think it's so important to find ways to allow that filter to be, I don't know, through all of these organizations. You're absolutely right. I think you know, this is why, again, just young people are, are, are the answer to so many of these questions because we have to build the next 
generation of artists, performers, educators, enthusiasts, supporters. Building the new wave of audiences starts with how we invest in young people. The thing about it is, that's the long game. That's not going to boost ticket sales next week, investing in a bunch of 12-year-olds. But then that exposes intent. If you're really in it for the right reasons, you're in it for the long game. I could go on a while about that. But that's really the answer to a lot of these questions is just investing in young people. I love that. And creating these communities. Because in order for an orchestra to feel like a community, everyone has to feel welcome. Right? That's it. You're not going to feel right. like you're part of a right. community if you're the only person who looks like you in the orchestra. Right. And right. we have never had to experience that. You're absolutely right. I think even just the experiences in engaging with the players themselves in orchestra, sometimes, as we were talking about earlier, sometimes that environment is not always the most welcoming. Just speaking in general, right? It's yeah. not always the most welcoming. Yeah. You get what you give. <laughs> That's so true. I love that idea of, again, just rooting it back to the foundation who is getting the opportunity to be exposed to this kind of music and feel like it's for them. Right. That's a beautiful way to operate. (laughs) It speaks to intense. Like, are you doing a bunch of gimmicky things just because you want to keep your position for another year or two? Are you actually trying to really foster a seminal shift in how we do all these things? It just speaks to intent. It's a dicey thing because many people do not know what they don't know about diversity. And you know what? That is an excellent point, too. That needs to be said, too. That is a very excellent point, Steph. You're right. And I'm glad you said that because there are people who, again, don't know what they don't know and open themselves up to receiving information. Then there's others who don't know and don't care to know and still believe that they are the answer to everything even though they don't know. Mm, so, but you yeah. can't put everybody in the same bucket. So you're absolutely correct in that. Yeah, but exactly. Like you said, there's that distinction too. There's the open-minded yeah. version of that. And then there's the, right. I know what's right. I'm right. going to do what I think is right, right anyway. We all have so much to learn about all of this. Yeah. And mm-hmm. to do it with an mm-hmm. open heart is so, right. so key. It's a very degree of recognition of privilege, I feel like, in a way that I would not have understood even four years ago. I had any concept of what it would mean to really check in with. And it's so layered. (laughs) And so, you know, I I think even the person who's just going to throw some ideas out there and doesn't follow through, like, to me, it's a question of literally not being able to recognize in themselves the places where they fall short in this way. And sure. the more willing sure. we are able to do that, like you said, Stephanie, uh, open our hearts and be and be willing to hear anything that's hard. I think that's important. Right. And it's one of those situations where I feel like the best way to do it is to find out what the right way to do it is for someone else. Yeah. <laughs> Continue to ask yeah. the questions of the community. What right. do you need from me? Not the other way around. Right, right. And I think, again, just having these types of conversations and these types of collaborations are a big part of that. You know, that's why I think what's happening here and other is so important and effective. Just like you said, having an open mind and just having these conversations is a big part of it. This has been so amazing, Donnie. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, I love this conversation. I've enjoyed it. You are the best. Yeah, I've enjoyed this a lot. (laughs) Oh, Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season sponsors, Arcrest, Potter Violins, and Aria Lights. Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. If you loved today's episode, consider writing us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you want the chance to hang with us and have access to behind-the-scenes audio and video recordings, check out our new Patreon. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogeman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon.